Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, February 18th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Swai Chen Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. So last week was Valentine's Day. So before we get into the the proper water cooler, let's talk about what we've been what what we did on Valentine's Day. Uh, Jacob, did you do anything exciting? Uh, flowers and dinner. You know, it's when you're dieting and when you've been married for as long as we have. Uh, Valentine's Day is just an excuse to do something a little nice. We didn't go all out at all, but it was still. A, it was it was a very pleasant time with the person I love, and that's really all I needed. Yeah, as I discussed last week on the on the podcast, uh, going out as a couple on Valentine's Day, where, where all they have is these prefix menus that like have basically everything that you're going to eat or is planned out for you, is hard for one person on their diet. Never mind two people on two very different diets. So uh, me and Ketra stayed in. And I got her a heart-shaped pizza, which is something apparently she's wanted ever since they've been doing that. So, uh, you know, 
sometimes it's the little things that make people happy. We we, we stayed in and watched some TV. Uh, Chris, that's what you did as well, right? Yes, that's really it. And I, uh, yeah, that's that's it. I have I I feel very bad that I don't have like a romantic story here, but uh, you know, my wife and I we're we're comfortable with each other doing absolutely nothing. That's that's what attracted us to each other. We like to do nothing. So, yeah. Well, at least you're all on the same page. Um, yes. Ben, what 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 did you do? Uh, my wife and I went to this restaurant in L.A. called John and Vinny's, which is a, an Italian place. It's really good. But they the they have like they basically make you get reservations a month in advance. Like I'm, I'm looking at their calendar right now. And for uh, March 16th, which is almost a month from now, the only dinner reservation available is at 430 p.m. That's like the one slot that you can get right now. So it's, it fills up all the time, basically. But we managed to get reservations, you know, a, a month in advance for the Saturday after Valentine's Day. So it was good. We sort of got to bypass the crazy traffic that happens in LA on actual Valentine's Day and just celebrated it a couple days later. And uh, the food at John and Beanie's is like out of this world. So it, it's great. Yeah, a bunch of my friends celebrate Valentine's Day with their significant other either the day before or the day after just to avoid like all that kind of, you know, raising the prices, prefix menus and all that stuff. And I think that's probably the smart way of going about it. And John and Vinny's, if uh, you've never been there and you are in Los Angeles, it's amazing. Uh, their pizzas, like they actually are the ones that cater like most of those like Oscar and Golden Globe parties and premieres with their 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 pizzas are just incredible um ht what did you do for valentine's day i spent it with me myself and i uh as the resident single person on this podcast i just uh, spent it with my roommate we watched miss congeniality and drank wine and uh, i cuddled up with the only man i need in my life which is my jeff goldblum blanket so <laughs> yes um that i definitely did probably about the same or less than chris did not quite the romance that everyone else is experiencing Brad, I know there's a lot of distance that separates you and your girlfriend this Valentine's Day, but how did you guys celebrate? Yes, uh, we, we're not together for Valentine's Day. She will be here later this week to visit for my birthday, and we'll kind of make up for it. Uh, but we still um, wanted to do something for each other. Uh, initially, we both just bought each other like a, a little gift to send one another. Uh, but both of us had some problems getting it to each other. Hers was delayed, and it wasn't going to get here on time, and mine ended up lost for a couple days, even though we ended up finding out that her neighbor picked it up because it was sitting out in the rain when it got delivered and she didn't want it to get ruined. So it was nice of her, but it ended up not reaching her until Friday uh, when she went over there and finally met up uh, with with her neighbor and got the package. So that was good. Um, and then but the way my girlfriend actually uh, made up for not being able to deliver what she initially wanted to is she actually ended up outshining me completely and doing something really cute by getting my friends involved uh, and my mom by having uh, one of my good friends, uh, Charlie, deliver me lunch from one of my favorite places here. And then my mom uh, dropped by around dinner time and uh, delivered me food from uh, my favorite barbecue place uh, that my friend Alex owns here in town. So it was really cute. Uh, I, she also uh, sent me a little thing of uh, balloons as well, like, like an adorable uh, woman that she is. So... We will uh, definitely have um, fun celebrating a Valentine's Day with a nice dinner when she gets here and uh, going out for my birthday later this week, too. So the key to Brad's heart is a nice meal. It really is. That's that's exactly why I'm always the one doing stuff in the uh, what we're eating section. Yeah. 
By the way, I, I found a, I get a lot of packages from Amazon. Like I, I tend to be like one of those people who d- doesn't like going grocery shopping. So I'll just like order everything from Amazon. And I found that the Amazon delivery drivers, especially when there's bad weather, like in Los Angeles recently, there's been some rain, which I know to the rest of the country and world sounds like not bad weather, but it's unusual weather here. They will like mark something as delivered. And then, like, deliver it, like, the next day that there's not bad weather. And it's, like, this frustrating thing because you freak out when you see, like, you know, I get notifications, like, something's delivered. And I, like, look, and I'm, like, did someone steal it? And then you go through, like, this range of emotions for 24 hours before it actually arrives. And, you know, you email Amazon and you're, like, someone stole my packet. (laughs) You know, it never got delivered. And they're, like, wait until next week. If it's not here by next week, you know, email us then. Uh, Anyways. Long way of saying, if this happens to you, uh, it, it seems to be very typical. It's happened to me like four or five times at this point. Jeez. Yeah. Um, but I order a lot of things on Amazon. So, uh, yeah, let's move on to our proper water cooler segment and talk about what we've been doing. I haven't been, been doing much this week. So I'm going to pass the mic to Jacob. Yeah, I've <laughs> all my waking moments are a pit of dread because of South by Southwest coming up in less than a month. And I want to say South, get us out of the way for South Southwest is a really, really great festival uh, programmed by people with really good taste and I end up always having a good time. And I feel like it's one of the very few festivals that is not genre centric to really put like horror and comedy both like at the forefront to make them headlining premieres. They go out of their way to like embrace documentaries and mainstream movies. They've, they've embraced VR and TV. They really are a really varied and special festival but since it's also a wider conference uh with a music festival and a tech conference and even uh getting into the tabletop space and video game space recently it's just become this massive cluster to try to organize and plan for and i'll be on the ground again this year it'll also be a handful of slash home regulars uh who will be in town contributing as well and it is a let's, let's put it this way South by is always rough on the city. I, parking rates go up so much. I've been ride sharing the past few years without even trying to park. Uh, but that's because in past years, South by has always coincided with spring break. So all the U- University of Texas students are out of town. And also with um, the state capital legislature being out of sessions, so all the government employees are not working downtown where South by is held. This year, South by is being held during uh, before spring break and while the legislature is still in session. So the already nightmarish scenario of navigating South by is going to be full of thousands more college students and however many government employees just want to do their jobs in the place where a festival is being held. It's going to be a rough, rough, rough go. And for a festival that already has serious organizational issues, I mean, as good as the programming is, there are no P&I screenings. So getting into stuff sometimes a crapshoot, you got to wait in line for hours for certain movies. Even with a new express system they've been introduced the past few years, that helps. You're not guaranteed certain things. And I, I'm spoiled by other festivals where, <laughs> where like, well, like a, a Fantastic Fest, they literally send you an Excel spreadsheet with all the publicists you need to know, saying, here's every single movie, every single person repping it, in case you have any questions, need tickets, you know, need help covering something, we got you covered. South by Southwest says, go, go into the jungle and hope you survive. And... <laughs> So that's why we have, I have a few freelancers who always attend who are, who are also going to be helping out this year because the chances of, of one person seeing everything that needs to be seen is next to impossible. And 
Once I'm on the ground, I'll be in the zone. I'll be fine. But until that point, I am losing my mind. Yeah, we'll talk about that when it gets closer as well. HT, what have you been doing? Um, well, last month, I got to watch the Tidying Up Netflix series with uh, Marie Kondo. I've been wanting to implement her techniques, the Marie techniques, on my own apartment, even though I have just moved in here, but already there is a bit of a, a clutter. So I wanted to do that, and I finally got to do that this weekend, or rather get started on it. I've just gotten through my clothes so far. But um, that was something that I, has been kind of on the back of my mind because I like to have a tidy space, and there have been plate things that have just been lying around almost some things that are kind of unpacked still, but um, I'm finally like getting that done. And uh, that's just something very cathartic for me. It's nothing really exciting, but it's it's, <laughs> it's exciting for me. You know, I've been uh, putting off watching this show because I know when I do, it's going to make me want to completely overhaul my place and get, you know, get rid of a lot of stuff. Uh, but while you are, you know, tidying up, in getting rid of the clutter, Brad is anticipating cluttering his place up with all the stuff announced this week. Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so New York Toy Fair was over the weekend, and it's basically the like the biggest uh, convention and like trade show for all, all the upcoming toys and collectibles that will be released from the various companies. And there was just a ton of cool stuff uh, that was announced that I'll probably end up having to spend my money on. At some point, uh, like there's there's some new uh, Marvel Legends figures um, that are giving certain characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe action figures for the first time, like Korg uh, from Thor Ragnarok and Luis from Ant-Man. And then there's also some new Star Wars figures, including a an even more detailed and bigger version of Darth Vader in the Black series that comes with uh, like better accessories and like um like actual designed like clothing but not clothing that not the kind of clothing where it looks weird on the figure like when they sometimes make clothing for figures um like I, i've never been a big fan of the Mego designs because i always thought the clothes looked odd on those kinds of figures but this the the way they're doing it for this darth vader figure looks incredible and there's like new lego sets uh that are on the way and like a bunch of new funko pops we we did a whole thing on the new funko pops that are coming last week and uh we'll have a a roundup of some of the cooler uh, toys and collectibles coming from uh, various movies and TV shows that that we really like uh, coming up on the site pretty soon. So it's it's going to be an expensive year. Yeah. I feel like Funko is doing everything they can to try to get me to jump in to this uh, money hole because they announced a Jim Henson figure with he, he has him and Kermit, and I feel like I need to own that. But the minute I buy a Funko Pop. I don't own any Funko Pops, but I feel I'm a person that has to collect things and I, it's going to be a problem. So I, I've been resisting thus far. How many Funko Pops do you have, Brad? Uh, I have too many. I, I don't, I'm not like, it's, it's funny. Uh, every now and then I have a, a friend of mine who also like collects things, doesn't buy as many things when he sees cool Funko Pops. He like sends pictures of them to me when he sees them in the store. And I'm, and I'm most of the time I'm like, no, I'm not really into those or that one or anything like that. And I'm kind of picky about them, but I still have a lot. Like, I want to say I have, like, maybe 75, oh, wow. I think. But that's, not. That's like, compared to how many are out there, that's nothing. Because there are, like, I'm I'm sure, I think that yeah. there are, like, hundreds of these now, if, if not somewhere, like, over a thousand. Oh, there, um, there's definitely in the thousands, especially with yeah. the variants and stuff. 
Yeah, because it, so it's 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 ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm very selective. Like it it really takes. Uh, I usually go out of my way to buy like Funko Pops if I if it's the kind of thing that I know they're not going to make real action figures of, and it's like the only way that I can really like um, have a collectible like from that movie. Like for example, they made uh, two Step Brothers Funko Pops of Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, and so I immediately bought those because they're never going to make Step Brothers <laughs> action figures. Um, and I did the same thing with uh, Twenty One Jump Street. I bought Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum in their uh, white tuxedos um, for for prom. So uh, that and like Star Wars and Marvel are the, the things that like I usually focus on. Do you display all your Funko Pops together, or are they spread around your your place? No, it, yeah, they're they're all spread around in different places. Like I have um, I have uh, Crow and Servo from Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand up near my TV, so it's like. They're, you know, as if they were watching the movie on the show. <laughs> I feel like I want to collect the Funko Pop, like, director series, but they've already released a bunch of them so far in limited quantities, and they're already, like, going for hundreds of dollars on eBay. Like, I think, like, James Gunn and Taika Waititi, and uh, did the Guillermo del Toro one come out yet? Yeah, that, and that's uh, that's one is, is not difficult to find, because that wasn't a limited edition yeah. one. Um, maybe I'll have to get into it because Jim Henson, I think, would would fit into that batch, and that maybe that could be an uh, such a specific line of Funko Pops that it wouldn't become a problem with me. Maybe, maybe. Uh, okay, nobody's been reading anything this week, so mm-hmm. let's move on to what we've been watching. I I've watched a lot of stuff this week, so I apologize in advance. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you know this. I know HT knows this, but there is a film that was released theatrically in February 2019 that has grossed over four, uh, $550 million worldwide in just, like, something like 12 days or something. Yeah, but yet I think 95% of the people listening to this podcast probably don't even know this movie exists, and that is because it is not an American movie. It's a movie called Wandering Earth, and uh, this movie is playing at, your, at some local AMCs. I saw it at AMC in Century City with my AMC a Or no, I saw it in uh, AMC uh, closer to my house in West Hollywood uh, with AMC A-List. And uh, it's basically China's first full-scale sci-fi blockbuster. The, the setting for this movie is actually has this very cool concept. It's based on a, a, a novel or a book series. It's... Um, Set in the near future, the sun is about to turn into a red giant, uh, pushing the nations of the world to consolidate into the United Earth government. Basically, a world government who comes up with this project to build these, um, these, uh, what would you, uh, HC, what would you call them? Like, I guess, propulsion engines? engines? Yeah, yeah, engines. Yeah. On Earth to basically move Earth out of the solar system to uh, another solar system where we could preserve the human civilization and Earth as a whole. And um, while it's doing this, uh, obviously, moving away from the sun causes, you know, tons of, uh, you know, catastrophic tides and uh, the, the rotation of the planet has to be stopped. So that causes madness on Earth. And, like, we're all living in these underground cities that we've built uh now i will admit uh the concept of this is kind of very interesting yet i'm not sure i'm not sure this is the solution for this problem (laughs) 
Like, it seems so much better to me, like, to build some kind of, uh, you know, build spacecraft. If we were going to build all those engines, we could build, like, that many spacecrafts and have each one, you know, house, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people from Earth and have those people survive. Because even in this situation, many people die because not that many people can fit in these underground cities okay anyways i'm, I'm getting too uh nitpicky here but uh this movie has some intense world building and it's uh reportedly a 50 million dollar budget but it feels at times like three or four times that it feels really big uh, lots of visual effects uh some of which is incredible some of which not so much um it feels to me like someone in china watched a lot of roland emmerich movies and made this as a result um I I know this is based on a novel. Uh, I don't know much about that novel. Uh, there's some really co- cool conceptual and visual sci-fi ideas here. and it's uh, it, But to me, it really does feel long. It's like a little bit over two hours. Weta made the spacesuits and exoskeletons and the weaponry. So all that looks cool. Um, the movie kind of sets it up for sequels. And with it doing this kind of banana bananas business uh i'm guessing we're gonna get those sequels uh if they do make those sequels though please please whoever's doing the subtitles on on these movies please do a better job because i don't know who did the subtitles but they they go on screen so fast that it's even hard to like read the sentence before it's over and i'm not like a person that doesn't watch subtitled movies i I, I, like people in my theater were like there's like this old couple behind us that was like complaining about it throughout the entire movie and i was like shut okay we get it i mean i'm it's bothering me too but you know now you're bothering other people who can't read it um hc you also saw this film What, what did you think of wandering earth yeah um i didn't have many expectations for this film. I knew that this was something that was really big in China. And when I went to the theater near me, uh, there was a huge line of Chinese people just like snaking out of out into the lobby. So this is a big deal. And it stars um, one of the like biggest Chinese action uh, stars who is in Wolf Warrior series and is a director in his own right. Uh, but this was like when you actually compared this to a Roland Emmerich film, I had that exact same thought. This is Independence Day for China. And a lot of it is kind of like the at the beginning of the film, the this communist uh, sort of logo pops up. And a lot of the themes of this film are kind of laughably on the nose about how nationalistic it is. Like there is, of course, it takes place on like, Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, and they're like, this is about working together and celebrating with your family. And um, the astronaut's friend is, of course, like his fellow Russian comrade who like helps him save the world with vodka from that he snuck onto the board from his mother, Russia. And it's there are moments like that that kind of made me like giggle a little bit, <laughs> but it's really well executed. Um, the effects are very impressive i was pretty like astonished for like half the film like just how good this looks and how uh well it's sort of like uh pace and how gripping it is i do think it is 
a tad too long. I could have done away with like cutting half an hour. But the world building is great. I I actually really enjoyed myself. I didn't have problems with the subtitles, but I think the subtitles with my screening maybe have been better or something. They hmm. had both English and Chinese subtitles and stuff. But um yeah, it was really good despite like I feel like I kind of tend to somewhat downplay a lot of recent Chinese blockbusters because they feel to me very like almost propaganda-ish, but this one kind of struck the balance between having those themes um and yet like telling a really compelling sci-fi story at the same time that in the end is more about just like the unification of humankind rather than just espousing some sort of ideals of that nation. And um I will say this is um this is based off the no- novella written by Lu Shichin, whose book The Three Body Problem was recently acquired by Amazon for like a huge amount of money. So we'll see something as kind of like this, I'm I'm sure, soon on um and on Amazon and TV. But uh, yeah, I I actually quite enjoyed this film, and um, I think it was kind of the perfect sort of uh, their first foray into sci-fi film, while like kind of giving that bombastic operatic Chinese blockbuster um, movie making a bigger stage. Yeah, totally. I mean, I would give this movie like a 6.5 out of 10, which I think if if you enjoy Roland Emmerich movies or you liked Pacific Rim, I feel like or you're just curious of where we are going as a worldwide entertainment culture. I I think this is uh, worth seeing, uh, especially on the big screen. There's a lot to see in that uh, in, in those frames. But um I also saw after I saw that we rushed over to AMC Century City uh, to another AMC theater to use our AMC A list again uh, to see Isn't It Romantic? We wanted to see this after Brad and HT both talked about this last week. Uh, my girlfriend Kitcher really wanted to see it. Um, this movie is delightful. I, I I agree mostly with what you guys said. I I like it. I think I like it more when it's commenting and playing against the the tropes of Roma, uh, uh, romantic comedies, but when it basically becomes a romantic comedy, it feels a little too obvious and vanilla. Um, Rebel Wilson is great. Hemsworth is great. I think this is something that probably a lot of people aren't going to see in theaters and hopefully people will discover on home video, but I, I, I think it's worth seeing. Uh, also, I wanted to mention before this movie, uh, there was two trailers that played that I wanted to just mention really quick. There's a trailer for The Hustle, which is the Rebel Wilson and Hathaway, like, I guess, is it a heist or con movie or something like that? And what is going on with Anne Hathaway's accent here? Why is it so bad? <laughs> like, I don't know. That was my same thought when I saw that trailer. Part of me is hoping that it's intentionally like that, and maybe, like, that in itself is part of, like, a con is not really an accent. It's <laughs> meant to be like that, I, but I, I don't know. I hope so. It's so off-putting. Peter, just just let Anne Hathaway do whatever she wants. She's earned that right. She had all that unnecessary animosity towards her for years, and now she's back on top. Let Anne Hathaway do any voice she wants. Hey, I'm not stopping like, her. Like Chris suggested on Twitter, actually, Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal should get together in a movie, reunite, and just do weird voices the entire time. That's right. Just a two-hour film of them just doing silly voices and wearing big glasses and stuff. I would watch that. <laughs> Tom Hardy comes in for a cameo. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's the narrator. <laughs> okay. Uh, the other trailer I saw was yesterday, and this is something I didn't see online prior. This is the Danny Boyle Beatles movie 
this looks really promising. If I had seen this trailer before we had made our most anticipated, I feel like I would have been really pushing for this more. Has anybody seen this trailer? Yeah, it uh, looks yeah, great. I, I, I agree with you. Sorry, yeah. sorry Ben. <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't even like the Beatles, and I feel like that's going to lose me. Like, half the audience is just going to turn I was about to say, Ben. That. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> let's, let's go back to that first sentence. I don't even like the Beatles. I don't, yeah. I don't, I, I can't, I, I certainly don't, uh, um, I don't want to take anything away from, like, how influential they were. I just don't care for... The way that they sound. <laughs> what about uh, what about the monkeys? Do you like the monkeys? No, no, I don't. What? Um, yeah, no. I mean, I actually don't know much about the monkeys other than just like I don't know. One, I guess. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. I don't know. I, I don't know much about them. What, what, so what about I'll the Beach that. Boys? Yeah, I like the Beach Boys. Okay. Um, I just I'm not a fan of the Beatles. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, but even you know, with that said, I saw this trailer and I was like, "Damn, this looks awesome!" So I'm very much on board for yesterday. Um, and I think it's, you know, see, my wife and I were talking about this because she also doesn't like the Beatles. So uh, maybe maybe Chris, that's why we were attracted to each other. My wife and I, uh, in terms of you and your wife, uh, were attracted because you don't. You're both fine with not doing anything. Yeah. Uh, we just don't like the Beatles. But um, we were both saying like we are very interested in this trailer, and I think that means lyrically we like what they do i just don't like the actual sound of those words coming out of those performers oh, wow. mouths so uh yeah i'm 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 on on board for this hearing ben say this this is what it must be like for you guys to hear me say i don't like home alone but like home alone too because <laughs> if you don't like the beatles but you'd like the beach boys i i, I my, my brain can't comprehend excluding one over the other all right, Ben, yeah. you, you, you broke being the same way I broke everyone else. Congratulations. Yep, yep. I like what I like. What can I say? Yeah, this, this looks great. If this, was, if this trailer was out before we made our list, I would have pushed hard for it on our most anticipated list for sure. Yeah. Um, I also tried to watch a bunch of TV, including I checked out the Hulu series Pen15, which uh, features uh, Maya and Anna playing versions of themselves as 13-year-old outcasts in the year 2000. And they're surrounded by actual 13-year-olds in this, like, adult comedy. Uh, I'd heard a lot of good things about this from other people. It's funny, but I'm not sure I'm invested too deeply. It might be a little more shallow. I, I only watched, uh, I think, the first episode, and I don't think uh, we're going to continue watching that. But I can totally see why people would like that. Uh, we also watched the first episode of Lorena, the Amazon documentary miniseries about Lorena Bobbitt. Uh, this is from executive producer Jordan Peele. It's a four-part docu-series that investigates the events of the 1993, uh, you know, uh, thing where Lorena Bobbitt sliced off her husband's penis after years of abuse, and it features new interviews with uh, both of the Bobbitts. And uh, I've, you know what? I lived through this and I never really found the story to be that compelling when it was actually happening. Um, I guess probably in the same way OJ. And actually, I do feel like this doc is kind of a response to the OJ doc and the uh, OJ series because it feels like they're using this doc to explore bigger themes of abuse and stuff like that. And I mean, that that's interesting. I only watched the first episode, uh, which was kind of about the event that became a media three-ring circus. And um, I don't... 
I don't know. I I also don't appreciate like th- this documentary is the kind of documentary that will without warning show you graphic imagery like a chopped off penis <laughs> that's bleeding uh on the screen with with no warning which is kind of uh I don't know. I feel like you need to give some warning. But um I I don't know. I feel like other people are going to like this, especially uh and I'm sure it gets better. Um, the first one is kind of the primer, and I'm thinking it's going to dive more into those themes that I was talking about. But uh, I'm probably not going to watch that. Uh, my girlfriend, Kitra, was a little bit more compelled and is probably going to keep watching it. Um, I also, in theaters, uh, went and saw Fighting With My Family. This is the Dwayne Johnson-produced movie that is about uh, a woman who grows up in a pro wrestling family in Canada and it's her and her brother auditioning to be part of the WWE. Um, And this is based on a true story where she ended up getting in and her brother ended up not getting in. And um, it's kind of about her rise to fame. And uh, you know, this, all the events of this happened way after I stopped watching wrestling, so I don't really know anything about the true story. Uh, the movie itself uh, really has like some rough edges. It feels like an indie film, but it has the broadness of um, in a like that kind of appeals to the masses. Like I think this film has like a ninety something percent of Rotten Tomatoes, and you can see why. Like this really is surprisingly charming. It's a. Uh, I think it's a movie about pro wrestling for people who aren't pro wrestling fans. I have some friends who are pro wrestling fans who didn't like it that much because of what it kind of left out. Um, it uh, it can be heavy handed at times, but it's exhilarating like any sports movie is. And um, it's weird that this movie acknowledges that wrestling is fake, and it kind of goes through this process of them training to be pro her training to be a pro wrestler. But by the end of the movie, it it almost feels like they're treating it like it's a real match where, you know, the ending isn't decided upon in advance. Uh, Brad, I know you saw this movie at Sundance, and I don't think you had a chance to talk about it on the podcast. What did you think of uh, Fighting With My Family? Uh, I really enjoyed it, actually. It's um, it's a solid underdog sports movie. It's uh, without being quite as good as movies like Rocky and Rudy, it does have that uh underdog sports drama feel to it you know with all these training montages and a character who is constantly facing adversity and and struggles uh it's pretty funny too um yeah it's i i really enjoy it but yeah there there were there is something odd about the ending about how um like you know this is it's not a spoiler because everyone knows that you know uh the wrestler page went on to become a champion uh wrestler in the divas section of wwe and everything but they do make it seem like, oh, is, is she actually going to do it? And it's like, yeah, of course she's going to do it. It's 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 scripted. That's how this works. Yeah, and, and, and my wrestling friends pointed out that they left out a whole part of her career that was at NXT. Like, she became the champion there. And I don't know. So it might bother pro wrestling fans. I feel like this does appeal more to, I think, a broader audience. I think uh, if this interests you at all, I would suggest go, go, see, go see the movie. I, yeah, uh, I... I'm I'm not a wrestling fan at all, and like uh, you know, uh, so it, and this was something that I I definitely enjoyed. So it de- it definitely hits with a, a broader audience than just wrestling fans. Yeah, and um, 
I kind of like how yesterday might work for a broader broader audience than just Beatles fans. I don't know. Just throwing yeah, that hit, out there. It'll hit Beatles fans and people who are just too crazy not to like the Beatles. <laughs> okay. I um the last thing or no, I watched a couple more things really quick, guys. Uh I watched uh we were trying to figure out something to watch. I think this was on Valentine's Day. We were like going through all the streaming services and somehow we were like on Amazon Prime now and uh we're searching through that, and there was a documentary listed there called Nintendo Quest. Um, and we decided to click on this and watch it, and we ended up watching the whole thing. It's not good. It's about a person who t- took on the task of trying to collect all the original NES games in 30 days, traveling across North America with no help of internet sales. He's basically trying to find and buy all 600 and something original NES games, some of which cost in the thousands. Um, why is he doing this? Because his friend, the director, challenged him to this arbitrary challenge. Uh, it feels more like an episode of one of those like reality TV shows like Toy Hunter than it does like a full-fledged documentary. And uh, But instead of being made by a TV network that knows how to produce things, it's filmed by a group of friends on a road trip. So it's not very well produced, um, the content is not that great. The con- concept is much better than the execution. Um, basically, if you can imagine a guy going to poorly lit or and organized retro game stores across the country and trying to bargain with the owners or the teenage kid behind the counter, you know, on the phone with the owner, that's basically what you're getting here. Um, I, I don't know why we did we didn't stop this midstream, but like, I feel like we at some point we were like we need to find out if he actually completes this collection or not because it was seeming like not. Um, the negotiating and the adventure parts are the best of this documentary, uh, but it, it's weird because sometimes they won't show you the final prices that he paid for some of these things. Like maybe the people on camera don't want them to know how much they how much of a deal they gave um the the uh i don't know the the ending was also kind of disappointing i'm not gonna you know spoil it here you can watch this for free if you have amazon prime it's on there um if you like old school video games check it out it's but it's really uh a disposable watch um the last thing i wanted to talk about in the segment is I did watch the first few episodes of the Umbrella Academy on Netflix. This is a show based on the beloved comic book series about a group of estranged siblings with extraordinary powers who are reunited by their father's death. And they need to uh, they start uncovering some shocking family secrets. And there's a looming threat to humanity on the horizon. Um, this is not exactly what I expected it to be. It's a. It has this whimsical voiceover you might expect from something like Lemony Snicket. It has a incredible production and art design. Like these Netflix shows recently, including like this and Sabrina, like just are like amazing. Uh, this um, there's a this is set in kind of like a weird alternate universe. Like this, the the caretaker or butler is like this talking monkey, like this ape. Uh, who looks like he's, you know, out of, you know, the Planet of the Ape movies, but he, he is, you know, fully able to talk and is intelligent. Um, the, the This show, I think, could best be described by me as, like, if you could picture if Wes Anderson 
ate some mushrooms, and decided to make an X-Men TV series. This is, like, what it is like. It's maybe not as stylistic as Wes Anderson's stuff. Uh, has a fun soundtrack of pop hits. It's wonderfully weird. Um, it's, uh... There's something stylistic, inventive, and fun about all the action sequences. The only thing I don't like about this show is... Robert Sheehan uh, plays an addict uh, named Klaus, and he's definitely kind of like the comic relief, and he's kind of like over the top and the weakest of performances of this group. But uh, I'm going to keep on watching this. I'm three episodes in. I know uh, a lot of people in my Twitter stream binged this over the weekend and loved it. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I'm going to get there. I will get there. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I went out first. I saw Alita Battle Angel uh, on opening night. And, oh boy, I don't even know where to begin. I like this movie, but I like it in the same way I like Jupiter Ascending and Independence Day Resurgence, in that I like to pick through the pieces of a giant mess that I really, where all the individual components I really like, yeah, sort of in spite of itself. And, man, uh, this movie, like, I, I love the world of the movie. It, it was actually an improvement on the manga, which I've been reading and talking about on this show. Uh, I love the idea of, instead of being this, like, grim dystopia, the futuristic cyberpunk, you know, world of Alita is very much this thriving third world city. It it's, has shades of, you know, Southeast Asia, shades of Cuba and South America. It's meant to be, like, it's not a, you know, typical Western Blade Runner city. It is, it imagines... You know, a different cultures and different worldview of of a future where the people who are alive are happy to be alive in in a, in a post apocalyptic world, which is a really refreshing change of pace. I really, really like that. I really like Rosa Salazar as Alita. I like Christoph Waltz as the uh, robot doctor who finds her cyborg body in a dump and uh, and like fixes her up and acts as a father figure. I like the visual effects. I really like like the robot and cyborg designs. What I don't like is how cobbled together the story is by trying to combine the first three arcs of the manga in a way that they all pay off simultaneously, in a way it's really messy and really makes character motivations really bizarre. And even more problematic, and I, I know people roll their eyes at the P word, but you can tell this is a James Cameron project that began 20 years ago because James Cameron is always had a very, very specific view of women. And there's some really questionable things in here. And this is a very minor spoiler. But at one point, Alita gets a brand new robot body. And her brand new robot body um, grows breasts in a female shape. And after previously being a child for most of the movies, so childlike, just you know what an orange is, suddenly she has a grown woman's body with all the features of a grown woman. And a character even comments, wow, she's more, she's older than she looked. As in, it's like, hey, it's okay for you to be sexually attracted to this child in a way that's really uncomfortable, made even more so by the fact that the character who's in love with Alita is dressed literally like Rob Rodriguez the entire movie. If you've ever seen Rob Rodriguez in an interview, you've seen him wearing what this character wears. So the sexual politics of Alita are beyond are beyond fucked. It is, it is a, it's a conversation I'm not prepared to fully have right now, but everyone I've talked to who's, who's seen it was really <laughs> troubled by this. And... The fact that the movie is a huge, ambitious mess makes it really entertaining. The fact that it has these sexual politics that are really upsetting <laughs> um, makes it even more interesting, even though I think it could be off-putting for most people. So it's hard for me to recommend, but I 
also have a hard time saying don't go see it because it's well-staged spectacle. It's such a cool world. A great Rose Salazar performance, but it's undone by just movie not knowing how how women work and the fact that the, the love interest is so such a black hole of charisma and so that has no chemistry with Rosa Salazar that since the movie relies on those two having a love connection, a spark that will carry the third act. And since it's not there, it just collapses. I'm reminded of Titanic and how Jack and Rose on the page really aren't that well established, but DiCaprio and Kate Winslet have such a instant spark, instant chemistry that they sell Titanic's grand love story in a way that works. And maybe because Cameron, you know, didn't cast this movie because he didn't direct this, he only wrote it and produced it. He couldn't find an actor who can match Rosa Salazar's, you know, screen presence. And the result is a relationship that drags down and destroys a movie that needed that relationship to work. So in other words, I have very mixed opinions on Alita, but I'll be revisiting it in the future because this is a mess I want to poke <laughs> at for a long, long time. I think it's better than mess. I think it's more messy than a mess. And I know HD and I both recommended this last week. Brad, you also saw this film. Yes, I did. Um, and I I actually really liked it. I I had kind of written it off, I guess, and didn't really care about it, even though I still planned to see it just to see, uh, you know, essentially how much of a train wreck it was going to be. But I ended up actually being really entertained by it and really liking the world uh that the the movie ex- exists in uh it's it was very um it felt very worn in uh a lot like you know like they did with the original star wars and it had, it felt like a world that had been fleshed out by someone like james cameron and it did have that that touch to it where it um it clearly had a lot like a mythology behind it and really a lot of forethought into how the the setting needed to uh feed into the story and uh it, i will agree with jacob that it was it it seemed a little weird that change they made for Alita, but at the same time, in my mind, I kind of felt like the it was explained technically as as far as far as the technologies explained that maybe the the way the cyborg works when you take the the head of Alita and put it onto a new body that it kind of adapts to the body, and so she was like a little girl before, but then with a different body, and since the, since the body also adapted to her, that her that 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 older personality was inside of that the head the whole time, but it was hindered by the fact that the body wouldn't let her fully be that way. So I, it it still does have very odd sexual politics at play here. Um, but but that was that was kind of like what what I thought as far as the the narrative explanation as to why why that happened. Um, but as for the chemistry for the romance, yeah, it's it's real bad. Uh, Kean Johnson is awful in this movie. Um. He's definitely a Robert Rodriguez standard, and he's just he gives such a terrible wooden performance. It feels like he's in a completely different movie, like uh, so like some kind of crappy uh, Divergent sequel, which is redundant. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I I otherwise besides that, I think there's a lot to like here. I'm actually really bummed that it's not doing great at the box office because I would love to see a sequel, especially with what uh, the character that is shown. Uh, and revealed, you know, at, at the end of the movie without spoiling anything for anyone. Um, and and yeah, so yeah, that's 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 where I'm at with Alita. You know, what? we 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 should do an article, guys, on big budget movies that set up for sequels that never happened. Dark Universe. Yeah, 
That's what it's called. Tron Legacy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, no, I, I guess it is a dark universe of, of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jacob, what else have you been watching? I also saw, actually, this is my Valentine's Day movie. My wife and I went and saw Happy Death Day to You, uh, the sequel to Happy Death Day, a movie we both really enjoyed. And, man, this movie, I know Chris talked about this last week and he has a review on the site. Man, this is a really, really fun movie. Uh, Christopher Landon, the director, he abandons any pretense of horror. I mean, if the first film was a horror film with very strong comedy in it, this is a comedy with the occasional horror scene. It's pretty much a wild and wacky college campus movie full of gags and jokes and silly things, uh, dealing with time travel and time loops and everything. Uh, and even though there's still a mass killer and there's still a mystery and there's still, you know, some murderers, the main character is still being killed over and over again and, you know, uh, and having to be reborn to solve her own murder. It's so different. I kind of wish that the movie did not name drag, name drop Back to the Future Part 2 to make it more obvious, uh, but it is, it's the Back to the Future Part 2 of horror sequels. It revisits the first movie in ways that are really fun and crazy. And it does things that are really, uh, it's really playful in its structure. Uh, it's maybe a little laborious in the first 15 minutes trying to get to where it needs to go. But once it's rolling, it's really funny. And Jessica Roth in the lead is spectacular. Uh, I had an absolute blast. I think people who maybe go in expecting the same movie and want more of the same, more horror are going to be bummed out or disappointed. But if you just want, you know, the little eccentric quirks of the first film expanded to be the entire film. This is very much a worthwhile experience. And uh, Chris, do you have anything to add? I know we talked about this last week, but I wonder if you have any new thoughts on this. No, I mean, yeah, you, you definitely nailed it. Um, <clears throat> I, I liked the first film, but I loved this. I just had such a good time with it. And Jessica Roth is so good. Like I, I said this already, but I, I can't understand why, she's not a bigger star because she's so good in this franchise. And I honestly think she should be getting like Emma stone quality roles at this point. Cause she's that good in, especially in this film where she has to go through a lot more uh, like of an emotional roller coaster. She nails like all of it. And I just want her to blow up in a big way and hopefully she will someday, but I don't know. Yeah. There's a uh, scene late in the movie. I won't spoil where she has a conversation with a character who, um, who means a lot to her. And I started going, oh my God, is happy death day to you going to make me tear up <laughs> because it certainly did. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting movie in that way. It managed to pull those, pull the right strings in, in ways that didn't feel too manipulative, even for a goofy comedy. Uh, my wife and I had a horror movie night for our first one in a little while. And uh, we watched first stream of Netflix. Don't knock twice a film from a few years ago. Uh, from Welsh director Cara Dog W. James. And I've never seen the trailer for this. I think I may, may have even written it up in Slash Film when it first hit. And it's a low budget, you know, Welsh movie starring entirely Welsh actors and maybe and, and English actors with a sole American being Ballastar Galactica's Katie Sackoff. And it is a witch movie about a witch hunting a teenage girl played by Lucy Boynton from Sing Street. And her estranged mother, played by Katie Sackoff, has to try to rescue her. And the movie got like dragged through the mud when it was released, and probably rightfully so because it's not great. But I feel like I've seen so many crappy horror movies. I graded them on a curve, and I thought "Don't Knock Twice" was totally adequate. It has a has solid scares, has uh, decent acting. It features uh, Javier Botet. Uh, he's he's a uh, an actor who has a Marfan syndrome, which means he's very very uh, tall, very very thin, very very long limbs and fingers. 
And even though it's a disease that, you know, that gives people heart conditions, it can be very dangerous. He's used it to play all kinds of creatures and monsters, movies like Wreck, uh, The Conjuring 2, uh, he was an it. Because IMDb page is all, pretty much if there's been a very tall, very thin, creepy monster in the cinema in the past decade, it's been Javier Botet. And this movie makes very, very good use of Javier Botet and uh, by putting him in the witch costume. He's the creepy witch. And uh, for all the movie's other faults, you know, it's definitely, you know, a little silly and dumb uh, and low budget. But it gets the job done. It scratches it scratches the right itches. And uh, the, the director sure knows how to frame um, Botet to make him look as creepy as possible. I wonder, does anybody else see this? Or am I alone in thinking it's, it's actually pretty good? Uh, I've seen it, and yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I like ever watch it again. But when I was watching it, I didn't, you know, I didn't get that urge to turn it off as I do with a lot of modern crappy horror films. So yeah, it's it's worth seeing at least once. Yeah, good modern crap. Don't knock twice. Now streaming on Netflix, and we followed up with a movie I haven't seen in like uh, maybe literally a decade, and that was uh, the Ruins. The adaptation of uh, Scott B. Smith's novel. Uh, Scott B. Smith wrote A Simple Plan and then wrote the uh, Sam Raimi adaptation, which he received an Oscar nomination for. And The Ruins was his second, so far, only only other book. And he wrote the screenplay for this as well, directed by Carter Smith, who really hasn't done much since then. And this is a movie about American tourists who go into the uh, go into the jungles on a uh, while on vacationing in Mexico. Uh, and find themselves uh, on ruins where bad things start happening. Uh, I, I don't want to say too much because it kind of saved the reveal of what, of what the bad thing is. We're kind of late in the movie. Uh, I liked the book when I read it, goodness, 10 years ago. And I liked the movie uh, when I saw it 10 years ago. And, and it holds up. It's There's some really, really bad CGI in one sequence that has not aged well. But most of it where we relies on practical effects is really upsetting. It's a really good body horror. And it's... Maybe a little bit too simplistic and xenophobic in its depiction of, you know, white tourists having a rough time in Mexico. But it's uh, it's very effective uh, and very squeamish and actually tones down some of the novel's darker elements, which I thought was interesting. And, and a, the book's ending is far more depressing than the movie's ending. And it must have been a conversation between the director and the writer since the writer wrote both. Uh, once again, I want to see if Chris has seen The Ruins recently because uh, I know you're a horror guy. Uh, I have seen it. Not recently, but um, I didn't really care for the movie. I loved the book. The book really fucked me up because it's it's a miserable book in the sense that it does this thing that a lot of like horror you know novels or films don't really do, and it takes you inside the heads of all the characters like as they're dying and it really just screwed me up because it's just all about like, you know, their interior monologues as they're like being slowly killed. And it, it really like jarred me when I read the book. Cause I, I don't think I've ever really read anything like that. And uh, the movie just didn't translate it that well, even though, like you said, it's the same writer. Uh, the movie's not bad, but the book I just think is 10 times better. See, I, I have not read the book and I, I think this movie is underrated. I feel like it came out at a time I could be wrong, but I feel like the Eli Roth Hostel movies had come out and this it kind of got some bad stigma from that. It's kind of like the same kind of thing in premise form. So I feel like not many people saw it in theaters, but I feel like it was I don't know. I, I, I think I was expecting kind of like a, you know, Screen Gems esque horror film. And it uh, exceeded my expectations when I saw it, uh, you know, a decade ago. 
Well, if you want to revisit it, it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now, so you can go check it out there. Yeah. Um, Brad, aside from Battle Angel, what have you been watching? Uh, so part of the th- uh, plans that I made with my girlfriend on Valentine's Day included trying to watch something while she was uh, babysitting her sister's two kids so that her and her husband could go out for Valentine's Day. So we had to watch something kid-friendly that was easily available for us both to watch, and we settled on Peter Rabbit, uh, which is available on Netflix right now. And it was something that I wasn't necessarily excited to watch, but it was like, yeah, why not? I like Domino Gleason. I like Rose Byrne. James Corden can be tolerable most of the time. Um, and I was actually really surprised to actually enjoy this quite a bit. Um, it's definitely got some goofier, uh, you know, kid-friendly slapstick elements to it. Uh, but it's it's not anywhere near as, like, grating or terrible as something like Alvin and the Chipmunks or any of those sequels. Uh, it's actually pretty clever. There's a lot of good, uh, dry British humor in it. Um, it's directed by Will Gluck, who also directed Easy A, and I think that you can feel uh, that you know a director that has some comedic sense for adults was behind this, as opposed to a director who is constantly making movies with uh, stupid fart jokes and things like that for kids to to laugh uproariously at. So I was I was actually really satisfied with this. The voice cast is great too. Um, Peter Rabbit's sisters are played by Daisy Ridley and Elizabeth Debicki and Margot Robbie. Daisy Ridley is particularly hilarious because she's like kind of the weirder sister of the two. And she has some great just deadpan delivery of, of some like hilariously odd lines. Um, so, yeah, if, if you if you have kids uh, and you're looking for something fun to watch with them that you'll also enjoy, I would definitely recommend Peter Rabbit. It, you watch some other stuff this week, too? And then I watched uh, Love, Rosie, which was something that uh, my girlfriend picked. She'd already seen it, but she hadn't seen it in like uh, since the first time she had seen it. She'd kind of forgotten about it. And it's a uh, romantic uh, comedy from 2014 uh, that stars uh, Lily Collins and Sam Claflin. And it's uh, it's pretty charming. It's uh, it's also a British movie. And it basically follows these two lifelong friends who are constantly back and forth with their feelings for each other and each of them kind of goes off and finds their own life but and keep um missing each other at different times and and never really getting in a groove where they like express their feelings for each other it's, it's a story you've heard you know plenty of times before but both uh sam Clave and lily collins are pretty uh good in it and it's uh yeah it's just one of those you know charming romantic comedies ht have you seen that one I actually haven't this is one that I haven't even heard of. Um, I'm not a big Lily Collins fan, so I haven't watched a lot of her movies, but you sell it well. Although I'm kind of anti-Sam Claflin just because, (laughs) I mean, not for any good reason, just because, like, I have a vendetta against, like, the white male guy who often is chosen by Hollywood to be the next big blockbuster star, but is often asked, lacking in some sort of charisma. Although I know Brad is a fan of him, so uh, I haven't seen enough of Sam Claflin's movies to make a good judgment. It's not, yeah, it's he, not his fault that Hollywood keeps on picking it's him. It's not his fault. It is Hollywood's and fault. I think, and I thought he was great in Catching Fire, too. He was so great as that that smarmy, uh, you know, cocky character in uh, in Catching Fire. And I think, yeah, he's um, he's charming. I, I, I like him. He's way better than at least Jai Courtney. <laughs> I think we've given up on Jai Courtney at this point, right? Apparently not, because he has that stupid cameo in Alita Battle Angel. And the worst part of that is he's playing my favorite character from the manga. So they they say, oh, we're we're teasing his character from a future sequel. Here he is. It's 
Jai Courtney. I'm like, never gonna make this sequel. The fact that they cast Jai Courtney as a character who's like my favorite person in that comic really, really like was like being kicked in the balls. It was terrible. I'm very mad about it. Jai Courtney is the Delaware of people. (laughs) There's good news, Jacob. They're not gonna make that sequel. So they're not. Chris, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I watched two Disney movies and one very not Disney movie. Uh, I watched um, Leaving Neverland, which is a documentary that played at Sundance. I didn't get to see there. Um, it's airing on HBO, I think, next month, so I got a screener of it. And this is the uh, the documentary about um, Michael Jackson and two uh, – two, they're, they're grown men now, but they're two of the people who accused him of uh, sexually assaulting them when they were children. And uh, this stirred up a lot of controversy from – Michael Jackson fans who think, who, you know, who claim that, you know, these, these two guys are just, they're in it for the money and they're trying to slander Michael Jackson's name and all that stuff. Um, you know, from a legal standpoint, I obviously can't say one way or another, like, yes, Michael Jackson is guilty or no, Michael Jackson is innocent. Um, I don't really even know where I used to fall on the issue. Uh, but after watching this man, it's, it's, uh, let me just say it makes a very convincing argument that something actually happened and i don't know if i can ever like listen to a michael jackson song the same way again because this is a brutal documentary and you know the the two guys are front and center and they're telling their story and there's never once a moment where you're like oh they're they're making this up like they really sell it as something that actually happened to them as something that you know, destroyed their lives and the lives of their families. And it's just this very disturbing look at, you know, how, you know, how people could be easily manipulated or, you know, or or swayed by someone who, you know, has power. You know, Michael Jackson at the time was like the biggest anything in the world. You know, just he was this not just a star, he was like a superstar. And the movie makes the case that, you know, not just the kids, but the kids' families were all just sort of, you know, wrapped up by that, you know, that star power and unable to really see past it for what was potentially going on. Um, it's it's long. It's like a it's literally four hours. It's two parts. And, uh, you know, uh, if if you're not uh, if you can't really stomach graphic, you know, descriptions of stuff, I would recommend not watching it. But if you're able to, you know, put up with that, it's it's a very insightful, very eye-opening documentary. So I, I do think it's worth seeing if you can handle the content it, it, it's uh, dishing out. Uh, Chris, real quick, a question. I saw um, a documentary at Sundance called Untouchable that was about Harvey Weinstein. And I it had a similar thing where it featured a lot of the... Uh, people that he assaulted over the years telling their stories. And I thought that the movie was valuable for giving them a voice, but the actual filmmaking itself wasn't really super interesting or, or that great. Do you think the movie or, or the, what, what would you call it? Some miniseries or whatever it is. Um, do you think the filmmaking is, is decent, the storytelling around it, or do you think it's just worth watching just to hear the story in these people's own words? I would say it's somewhere in the middle. The, the filmmaking is very much, you know, talking heads sitting in front of a camera and there's a lot of like drone shots of locations. So it's not like, you know, it's not like the most uh, earth shattering of filmmaking styles for a documentary, but um, there's all this uh, like archival footage and 
um, like, uh, you know, images of actual like uh, letters and faxes and stuff that Michael Jackson used to send these, these kids. And it really, it really, like I said, makes a convincing case that there was something going on here. So I would say it's not just worth seeing for the story. It is worth seeing just to see how uh, Dan Reed is the director, how he, he ties it all together. Cool. It's funny you mentioned drone shots. I, I feel like this is just a recent development in documentary filmmaking, but I can't like even imagine the future of documentaries without those drone shots of locations like in like, you know, true crime, like docs, like making a murder. Like, I feel like it has overtaken that whole, uh, you know, medium of filmmaking. It has. And, I you know, I, I think it's just because you can get such gorgeous looking shots for so cheap you know back in the day you had to literally rent a helicopter to get shots like this and now if you go to like you know i don't want to say radio shack because that doesn't exist anymore but whatever the sharper image and buy <laughs> you know a high grade drone with cameras you can end up getting like cinema quality shots of you know you know a point of view bird's eye shots and you know i just think that's why everyone's doing it but i do agree it's it's becoming where every single doc has this this sort of shot in it yeah um what else did you see this week chris uh so yeah i watched two disney movies um one is ralph breaks the internet the wreck it ralph sequel which was fine um for some reason this movie is almost a full two hours long which i think is insane for any animated kids movie like first of all kids don't have really strong attention spans and you know i'm an adult and by like the hour and 30 minute mark i was like jesus christ why isn't this over and if i'm like that (laughs) i can't even imagine like how kids sat through this movie um because especially because it it gets to a point where it seems like the movie is ending and there's like an entire 50 minutes left i was like oh my god like why is this movie like this there's no reason for it to be this long so i I liked the first record ralph i thought it was a a cute movie i thought this was just too much and it was like sensory overload there's just too much shit going on they're just everything every inch of the, the screen is like just stuff happening and i just was not in the mood for it but by the way try to watch fantasia with kids that that's over two hours long and that's like painful yeah but you know that's like more artistic <laughs> i guess than this was just trying to be like goofy ralph and in the, in the internet i don't know hd <laughs> do you have a defense of animated movies over two hours because i feel like a lot of the studio ghibli movies are of that length right like um Princess Mononoke's 134 oh, yeah. minutes. That's also a film that isn't made for kids. It's got a PG-13 rating. Um, Spirit Away, 125 minutes. That's a great movie, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're yeah, saying I, it just requires... I, I, moment. Yeah, I should preface this by saying, like, I don't mind long movies when they're great, and this is not what I would call a great movie. So by, you know, like I said, the hour 30-minute mark, yeah. I, I was ready to just check out. I think I think I, we can all agree on that. Um, and you also saw another Disney animated movie. That's right. Uh, so this is like the complete opposite spectrum. Um, uh, Disney is putting out a new 4K release of The Little Mermaid. It's the first time it's ever been. I don't even know. If, it might be the first time it's ever been on Blu-ray, but it's definitely the first time it's ever been on 4K. And so I got a copy of that. Uh, this is, of course, the film that kicked off the what they call the Disney Renaissance, where Disney stopped pumping out dreck and started making like classic movies again and this was you know the beginning of that and i hadn't seen this movie 
since I was a kid. Like I saw it in theaters when it came out. It came out in 1989. So I saw it in theaters. I might have seen it like once after that on VHS, but I haven't seen it since then. And man, this movie, uh, this movie holds up. I got, I, it, it made me wistful for the good old days of Disney. Not that Disney doesn't make good stuff now. They, they have several things they, they've put out recently that I, I've really liked. But this is, you know, first of all, you know, it's hand-drawn animation and it just looks gorgeous. And it just made me wish we could get that again from Disney, like a feature that's hand-drawn. Is it, it, it's, it's, it's more, I don't know, not, not to not to besmirch computer animators because I know a lot of work goes into that, but there's just something more special, at least to me, in knowing that, you know, so many people sat down and, and drew this movie and colored it by hand. And it's, that's just amazing to me. And, you know, the songs are all great and it's funny and it's romantic and it's 89 minutes long. So I, <laughs> you know, it, it's like night and day between this and Ralph breaks the internet and they're both Disney movies and they, they couldn't be more different, even though they both actually have, you know, Ariel in them because she's in wreck it Ralph. But uh, yeah, just watching this just made me feel really nostalgic for, you know, those, those old Disney movies by old in quotes, you know, it's not, I, guess, I mean, it's 30 years old, which I guess is it, old, but... You know. Chris is now considered a classic, which makes yeah. us all feel old, but whatever. God, it's 30 years old. It is yeah. older than me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, 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 I think that comes out on 4K next week. So if you haven't seen it in a while like me, uh, you should definitely pick it up because it, it's one of those those classics that really does hold up. How long do you think it's going to be until one of these big studios like Disney, DreamWorks, Pixar, uh, like, uh, I don't know, whoever makes animation at this point, like, actually does a big-budget, hand-drawn, animated feature film again? I wonder if Leica is the next one to do that because they are they are bringing back um, stop-motion animation, and that's uh, a, a technique that's even older than hand-drawn animation in some senses. I feel like um, I, I remember reading this article years ago, I think when, you know, the failure of Princess and the Frog happened and uh, they did these surveys of young children and how what they thought of hand-drawn animation. And I think because they grow up with hand-drawn animation on uh, like video and then everything they've grown up with on the big screen is like computer animated. Like the consensus was that they think they look down on hand-drawn animation as if it's a lesser art form like it looks not as like that much not as good to their aesthetic because they've grown up you know a toy story and those kind of things so i'm, I'm, just, I'm just wondering how how long is it going to take before there's enough nostalgia for hand-drawn animation to make it possible i hope it happens you know in the next 10 years i would, I would like to see it happen i know pixar came out with a hand their first hand-drawn animated short film today which is on youtube and is on slash film.com you can check that out there ben what have you been watching uh i watched russian doll which is the netflix show i think some of you may have talked about it last week but uh this was created by natasha leone and leslie headland and amy poehler this show is great guys i don't know if anybody else has not seen it yet but maybe any listeners out there if you have not seen the show i would highly highly recommend checking out it's only eight episodes and they're half hour episodes which is great um so you're only looking at you know four hours of of stuff here um uh, this it's basically a Groundhog Day concept, but uh, at the end of the third episode, it introduces a wrinkle that I've never seen in that Groundhog Day formula before that is really, really compelling. Um, 
I was into the show even before that, but that was sort of, sort of like the holy shit moment of this show. Like, oh man, I'm I'm totally into what whatever they're doing here, wherever they want to take me. I'm I'm on this ride. Um, Natasha Leone, you know, she she uh, actually wrote and directed. Uh, well, she wrote uh, several of the episodes and and actually wrote and directed the final episode, which I think may be one of the best ones. It's certainly the most emotional, um, and I think. Uh, she's great, man. I, I, I really want to see more stuff that she does. I, I'm not sure if I want to see more Russian Doll because I, I've, you know, reading around a little bit, it seems like they have a couple more seasons in mind. And I just think it, it works so brilliantly as an eight episode sort of one season and done kind of thing. Um, but the music is, is really good. The, uh, all of the characters are great. And I'm, I mean, not great, like great people, but great that in, in the way that where you're like constantly mesmerized by them. Um, and it just, it seems like a fresh take on such a, um, a well-worn trope, uh, which I didn't really think was possible, um, in this form anyway. So, uh, I, I highly, highly recommend Russian doll and that's on Netflix right now. Um, I also watched <laughs> I feel like I was I was duped into this next one. I watched a movie called Q, uh, like the letter Q. Uh, I I heard about it uh, under an alternate title, Q, the Winged Serpent, which is from 1982. It's a monster movie that was written, produced, uh, written, produced and directed by Larry Cohen, who's a guy who like wrote uh, a lot of the Maniac Cop movies. I think he wrote Cellular, the the Chris Evans <laughs> movie from like the mid 2000s. Um, so this movie came out on, I think Shout Factory put it out on Blu-ray in 2013. And I remember that was when it was first, it's sort of like, I remember film Twitter talking about it uh, and several people being like, oh man, this is like a, a hidden gem kind of thing. And I just had it in my, on my radar ever since then, like, oh, waiting for the opportunity to see this film. And uh, it came up on Showtime. I have Showtime. So it's it was just like cycling through the channels there. And you can check it out on, on Showtime. If you have a subscription there, you can like search for it through their on-demand uh, networks and stuff. Um, but this movie, <laughs> I was, uh, it, it's not very good. It was, uh, the budget is a million dollars and it, fi- you know, came out in 1982. It feels like a super, super low budget movie. It's basically about, so the movie is called Q, and that stands for Quetzalcoatl, which is the, an Aztec god who returns in this movie to modern day New York City and just like sets up in the Chrysler building, in the top of the Chrysler building, and just flies around eating people off of rooftops and like terrorizing New Yorkers. Uh, there is a guy who, who uh, who's like a, a low level crook who gets who basically discovers this thing and he gets embroiled in this this case with. Uh, two cops played by David Carradine and Richard Roundtree. Um, and and it all sort of comes to a head as they realize that this is not some uh, shared delusion by a bunch of New Yorkers. It actually is this winged creature that's flying around eating people. And the, the creature is done in like uh, stop motion animation and it, it looks pretty terrible. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I was just watching this, like waiting <laughs> for there to be some sort of like uh, you know, I don't know, some sort of interesting angle here where that would justify people talking about this movie in the reverent tones that I remember them talking about it. And I just never, that moment never came for me. So has anybody else seen this movie or, or heard of it? Q is uh, awesome. It is yeah. so good, Ben. You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the special thing is that it's about a winged serpent living on the Chrysler <laughs> building. What more do you need? I actually have a, I have a quick anecdote. There's a documentary called Citizen Cohen, which is all about 
Larry Cohen and his uh, amazing career. And he tells the story that when they were filming this, they went up on the real Chrysler building and shot real machine guns off it for a scene. And they didn't tell anyone. And so like the cops were called. It was like in all the New York papers that they basically had this like terrorist act by trying to film this movie by shooting machine guns on top of the Chrysler building. Wow. Larry Cohen makes very unboring movies. And I feel like whether whether you think they're good or bad or something in between, I go something in between. I've never seen a movie with Larry Cohen's name on it that I didn't, that I thought, I thought was useless. I think everything he's touched has been interesting or worthwhile or entertaining in some way. I will certainly say it wasn't boring. I'll, I'll give it that. Uh, I just don't know if it was fully my cup of tea. But anyway, you can you can check that out on Showtime if you're interested. And the other thing I was going to add is Larry Cohen provided the story for Cellular, but the person who actually wrote Cellular is Chris Morgan, and I think that was his big break before he got involved in the Fast and Furious movies oh, that, cool. that you yeah. actually love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so next up, I saw a movie from 1944 called Murder My Sweet, which is a film adaptation of Raymond Chandler's book, Farewell My Lovely. And I read that book, uh, I don't know, sometime last year. And uh, it was a little too twisty for its own good, I thought. Maybe a little too dense. Um, you know, the hard-boiled film noir uh, stuff, that was like you know, Chandler helped popularize that genre. Um, so this this certainly has that. And, you know, as somebody who had read Farewell, My Lovely, I was interested to see how that translated into a movie. And the answer is much better than it, you know, than it works as a book. I think um, Dick Powell stars here and he plays Philip Marlowe, who is Chandler's like main private detective character. Uh, Humphrey Bogart plays Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep and and a couple other things. And and there have been several people that have played Marlowe over the years. And I think I've only seen, I don't know, maybe like uh, Elliot Gould played him in The Long Goodbye. And The Big Sleep may be the only times that I've seen Marlowe on screen except for this movie. And I thought Dick Powell did a really, really great job stepping into this really famous character. I think actually... Technically, The Big Sleep came out after this, but still, uh, Bogart is like the, um, you know, when you think of uh, Philip Marlowe on the big screen, you think about Humphrey Bogart. But I think um, Dick Powell, his version of this character, who is like this uh, this guy who's always willing to take a punch and then just get back up and keep going and, and find the truth, regardless of how many beatings he takes throughout the movie. Uh, he brings a certain physicality to the the part that I don't think Bogart ever had. And I love Bogart's portrayal of that of that character. But um, Powell just brings a, a different shade to him. And I, I think. Uh, this movie works really well. It's it's a sort of a classic film noir in all of the you know stylistic devices. It's got the you know the the shadows and the um, the uh, uh, film fatale and all of that. The the classic uh, hallmarks of the genre. Um, and I think, like I said, it, it sort of streamlines the story and and takes out uh, a couple of the plot developments from the book that I thought made it a little bit too. Um, unnecessary a little bit too confusing but, um so anyway i would certainly recommend murder my suite and i think you can find that on itunes right now if you're interested uh and then finally i watched uh, just this morning i watched white heat which is from 1949 as uh, directed by raul walsh and it stars james Ca james cagney i talked i think last week about watching the public enemy which was the first james cagney movie that i ever watched um this is another one of cagney's uh, most famous uh, movies this is another gangster film from Warner Brothers that came out, like I said, in, in the late 40s. And uh, it's you know widely considered to be like one of the best gangster movies ever made. And watching it now, talking about movies that hold up, I mean, this one holds the hell up. It is it feels so modern in 
almost every every conceivable way like the look of it is gorgeous the the pacing i mean this thing just flies um uh james cagney who plays a psychotic criminal who is like obsessed with his own mother and he he re, he leads this gang and and i mean they, there's like train robberies and jailbreaks and all sorts of like insane it's it's every sort of it's basically like 1949's equivalent of today's action movie um and it's it's really really good so i would definitely recommend checking that out too it's it's called white heat and that one is also on itunes um man cagney i'm just i'm so impressed by him as an actor and it's i'm embarrassed that it's taken me this long to sort of get around to checking out some of his filmography but i'm really looking forward to getting into some of his lighter work too because he's so like vicious and and he he can snarl and really feel like a dangerous person uh on screen but i know he's also widely known as like a song and dance man in the movies and i haven't seen any of the stuff that he's done in that regard yet because i know that he was like a famous dancer uh or famously was a dancer as well so i'm looking forward to see him you know do something that's completely a complete 180 from a lot of the tough guy stuff that he's been doing or that i've been watching lately there's a really great Roger Ebert quote about his performance in Yankee Doodle Dandy, which he won his Oscar for, which is a song and dance movie, where Roger Ebert says, describes uh, James Cagney as not being a particularly good singer, uh, but being such a good actor, he could fake it. And I think that really sums up that performance extremely well. Nice. <laughs> okay, HT, uh, aside from Wandering Earth, what else have you been watching this week? So to prep for Wandering Earth, I watched on Hulu Wolf Warrior 2, which uh, is directed by and stars Wu Jing, who also stars in uh, The Wandering Earth. And uh, everything that I had kind of feared happening with uh, Wandering Earth, um, with like sort of nationalistic uh, themes and like the propaganda-ish things, uh, comes to fruition in Wolf Warrior 2, which is this really bombastic um, action film about this like super Chinese soldier named Ling Fing, who uh, is in Africa protecting medical aid workers and uh, ends up going toe to toe with a, um, I think, American sort of mercenary named uh, played by Frank Grillo, who is just having a blast during this movie, chewing all the scenery that he can. But this film is kind of fun. It's, It's a little bit laughable in the way that it just kind of um, is really reductive in its treatment of like African, it's African characters. It's like, it's very, they're very like, oh, <laughs> save us to like the Chinese soldiers. And in the way that it treats the the American military too, it paints it as being very corrupt. And uh, at one point, this uh, American, uh, Chinese American doctor who um, the the Ling Feng runs into is like, I called the embassy. They'll save us. The American military will be on their way. And he's like, I saw them flying away or I saw them sailing away. I saw a star spangled banner as well. And it was just, it was so funny to me um, the way that it's just so overtly anti-American. And yeah, Frank Grillo is, is really fun and just like, over the top in this, and uh, Wu Jing is is a uh, has a lot of fun in this as well. He's um he's a really good sort of grizzled super soldier esque uh, character. It's very kind of a superhero movie. It feels like a mix between Jason Bourne meets uh yeah a, a superhero. So I enjoyed it. Um and it was it's also like two and a half hours long, <laughs> um but it was a lot of fun and it kind of got me hyped for Wandering Earth. HG, and, I, have, I have a question about about this. Yes. Uh, I've seen my fair share of Chinese action movies and Chinese, uh, you know, thrillers at uh, Fantastic Fest, especially. And I can't remember the name of the movie, but there's one in particular where it's a very, very straightforward, like, 
revenge action movie about about a guy who's stranded in a small town and battles a bunch of locals for some reason and mm-hmm. manages to escape. And he does, there's no reason to go back to go kill the bad guys until he's like on the road away, meets a character he's never met until this moment. The character has conversations about how um, China never gives up and how China is great and China's about doing the right thing. And, and then he, the character leaves the movie forever and he has a surge of patriotism and goes back and kills the bad guy. <laughs> so, so I'm curious if there were any particularly out-of-place surges of, of Chinese propaganda in this one that were, are worth acknowledging. They always make me laugh. Like uh, I, I, I definitely I definitely think it was the, the part where he was t- teaching the American doctor about how the American military actually sucks. <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, I saw a, flat, a, a group of ships just leaving the harbor, and I think I saw a star-spangled banner amongst them. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really funny to me. Um, a, list yeah. and a, a list of the best Chinese propaganda moments that, that <laughs> come out of the blue in Chinese action movies. Exactly. That would be a fun list. Yeah. Um, I also saw, so um, I have, a, I'm a big fan of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And I'd actually seen the Alfred Hitchcock adaptation of this film when I was in college. And I saw that they were showing it at the Metrograph this weekend. So I jumped at the chance to watch it again on the big screen. So um, I saw Rebecca this weekend there, and I am a huge fan of gothic romances, as you guys may know. And um, this is a film that um, I, yeah, I saw back in college, and it still really holds up, and I enjoyed it much more, uh, uh, as much in the theater, although there are some sort of rowdy audience members who are laughing at some parts that were definitely not that humorous. Like the beginning is actually quite lighthearted and um, Alfred Hitchcock has a sort of winking uh, approach to a lot of his more like even darker, um, more suspenseful moments. But um, there are some moments where like they're, they were laughing at like the camera choices that were very much of the time and very kind of um, overt, but something that isn't meant to be laughed at. So I was annoyed by that, but I really enjoyed seeing it again and in a theater. And um, while I have kind of, uh, you know, become very familiar with the gothic hallmarks and I remember watching Phantom Thread and seeing a lot of those uh, parallels in uh, Rebecca, I actually noticed upon rewatch that there were more parallels to um, Gone Girl than I had realized. Uh, So this was really interesting for me to kind of notice in that, both of these um, stories center around these self-possessed women who mold themselves to these uh, societal ideals and are, end up being twisted into like this, those monstrous versions of themselves by the crushing pressures of patriarchal values, and uh, in that, in the end, become you know the villains. And I thought that was really interesting that um, this was kind of the template for that in a way. Uh, Rebecca was a template for a Gone Girl, and um, and in the end, it's interesting that like how of the time Rebecca is because it is about a woman who is not what she seems, and she is much more manipulative and scheming than she appears, and as opposed to being the perfect woman that um, Joan Fontaine's character imagines her as. But in the end, her worst sins are that she's an adulteress, uh, and Gone Girl definitely takes that and kind of runs with it and turns her into a full-blown psychopath, which I found really fascinating. So I really enjoyed watching Rebecca again, and um, Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine are great in it. Joan Fontaine in particular gives, I think, a very modern performance. Um, In films from the 1940s, as uh, Rebecca was, uh, those, those performances tend to be very kind of theatrical, but uh, Joan Fontaine gives something of a 
modern performance in that she's very she plays a timid character and kind of really goes into it with her posture and her mannerisms and i found that really fascinating uh and uh i i um judith anderson of course is amazing as miss dan mrs danvers and uh it's um it's not my favorite hitchcock film it's interesting too because it's uh hitchcock's first uh foray into hollywood filmmaking before that he was making films in um in britain and was and as he went over to Hollywood, he this was his first big p- flick, and he remade a bunch of his other films later on. Um, so it doesn't quite have all the hallmarks of Hitchcock's style, but there is something of it there. And um, I liked watching it too now because I was able to separate myself more from the book, which I really adored, uh, and not like compare it the entire time. So, Rebecca. Um, and I also watched on uh, Hulu as well this anime series called Code Geese. So Hulu recently added a bunch of new anime series. They're really building their anime catalog. And a lot of these are sort of more classic um, series. I say classic, but really they're from like the 90s and early 2000s. Code Geese was something that um, I remember running when I was into anime, like really into it at the time, but I kind of missed the boat on it. So I decided to check it out this time around and uh, see why it was such a big deal. It was like one of the more popular ones um, in the early 2000s. And... um, I could see why it has uh, this. It's set in this um, sort of post-apocalyptic alternate universe um, in which uh, Japan has been sort of conquered by uh, something called the uh, Britannia, Britannian Empire, which is kind of a stand-in for America and like. Uh, Europe and UK and stuff. So um, they have, the people have been starting a revolution against the Britannians and everything. And there's that political intrigue and um, the themes of terrorism and uh, sort of um, all this uh, schemes and everything. And at the same time, it also has mechs, like mecha robots and everything, as well as high school shenanigans. So with all three of those present in this anime, that's something that's kind of a formula for a successful anime. And I could see why it was such a big hit. It's not exactly my cup of tea. I I generally don't tend to really like mecha animes that much. Um, but uh, I, it's really well written. It's really well done so far. And um, the animation style reminds me a lot of some of my uh, favorite animes when I was uh, in the early 2000s, like uh, Dean Angel and uh, Subasa Chronicle. So it's um it's uh, on Hulu now. Other uh, it joins other shows like Outlaw Star and Fairy Tale. So if you want to check those out, please do. Very cool. Uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Uh, I haven't been eating anything really that interesting this week. I do want to say that I did finally get uh, Chalk Zeros coconut chocolate bark which is basically like these chocolate squares that have like pieces of coconut in in it to like you know give it more flavor than just being you know dark chocolate and these things are uh like 120 calories per the whole like it's a huge square and i think it has like three grams of net carbs so uh if you're looking for something that's low sugar and uh you know uh tastes really good you like chocolate and you like coconut i would highly recommend chalk zero's coconut chocolate bark i'll put a link in the show notes jacob uh how has uh the struggle been going struggle's been going okay uh i know that we've talked about the uh chocolate right brand here on the show before for really great low carb keto friendly uh snacks 
And I've had the uh, crispy caramel ones in your recommendation. I know you you said you didn't like the peanut butter cups. Well, no, one. I I think they're fine. I think I think I like the slim fast ones better. See, as I, I end up buying a box of the chocolate right peanut butter cups, and I love them. Like I absolutely love, love them. them. Okay. Uh, uh, so I so. I know not your thing, but I also want to let listeners know that um, I personally love them. So if you if you are, you know want something that we want a good peanut butter cup that's uh, I think one carb, one net carb for two pieces, it's w- worth seeking out. I also still like the Slim Fast ones, the keto Slim Fast ones, but I, I feel um, like the Slim Fast ones have more chocolate, and these ones have more peanut butter. Oh, see, I always prefer this slightly more peanut butter ratio. So yeah. maybe that's why. Yeah, that makes sense. But the point is that there's. It's really easy to get a candy fix when you're on keto because they actually make a lot of really good, you know, keto-friendly candy. What they don't make is a lot of really good keto-friendly chips, which is a problem I set up to solve. When my wife and I had our horror movie night, I wanted to have a snack with it. Um, so what I did was well, I took a low-carb tortilla, which is four net carbs. I cut it into eight triangles. I uh, fried them in avocado oil so they're nice and crispy. I salted them. I got two tablespoons of alouette cheese, uh, jalapeno flavor, so it's a little spicy. And that was a five-carb snack of, you know, uh, eight chips and some cheese. And when you eat eight chips slowly and don't, like, put two in your <laughs> mouth at once, like, it, like, made to take three or four bites per chip, um, it's actually a very filling snack. So even though I'm not a big fan of low-carb tortillas, like, in, in their soft form, I've talked about this before, I just don't like how packaged tortillas taste in general. Yeah. Once you lightly fry them in avocado oil or, you know, a similar oil that, you know, won't like, you know, uh, suddenly make this low carb thing worse for you. Uh, you get a really good, uh, crunch and really good, you know, chip alternative, you know, as long as you don't eat like, you know, 20 of them, you have to eat, you know, manage yourself. But I, I was pleasantly surprised by how satisfying that was. I think I suggested this on the podcast in the past, but I would highly recommend Jacob, you check out, quest who makes the the quest bars they make a series of chips most of which are not very good but they came out with one recently that's this like chili lime flavored chip which kind of uh i guess uh mimics those like uh tostitas with a hint of lime kind of thing so if you like those and you're looking for something that's a substitute for that these you can get on amazon it's it's like quest chili lime chips and they're amazing like i i think in the past two months i've gone through like like uh probably like like 30 something of them so uh, I, i've seen them online i'm not i've been kind of looking for them in stores but i guess we have to bite the bolt and just amazon them yeah uh i highly recommend them but uh i have tried the other ones from them like they have a nacho cheese and they have like a cool ranch and those are they're fine they're just not as good but um have you tried those at all? Uh, no, I've not tried okay. Quest chips yeah. at all, but okay. I, I feel like I probably should at this point so I can get more crunch back into my life. Yeah. Um, Brad, on Brad's Food Corner this week, what do you? What kind of uh, really bad goodness do you have for us? <laughs> uh, it's not anything super bad this time. It's just a couple new cereals that I uh, tried. I picked up a while back and finally got around to opening them and giving them a shot. One of them is uh, Fruity Lucky Charms, uh, which is a, I believe it's a limited edition one that you might have to search out uh, before it leaves shells. Uh, but it's exactly what it is. Instead of the normal um, uh, Lucky Charms pieces that go along with the marshmallows, 
These are fruit flavored, and they basically taste like tricks, uh, just with Lucky Charms marshmallows in them. The fruit flavor isn't quite as strong as uh, Trix is, but it does have a similar just general fruity flavor where you can't really pinpoint a specific fruit, despite the fact that Trix has fruit shapes. Um, so yeah, it's just a general fruity flavor with the mix of Lucky Charms uh, marshmallows. It's I don't know if I just haven't had Lucky Charms in a while, but it seems like there's just too many marshmallows in it now. Um, and it was kind of overpowering uh, mixed with the, the Lucky Charms, but the the fruit uh, flavor does did mix it up a bit, and it, I, I think I did enjoy this a little more than regular Lucky Charms, but maybe that's just me because I like fruit flavored uh, cereals a little bit more than just the regular uh, cereal flavor. And then another one that I tried is Strawberry Rice Krispies, uh, which is another limited edition one, and that one was actually supremely disappointing. The strawberry flavor is really bland. And I like so much that I actually would just prefer eating regular Rice Krispies with even without sugar on them. Like the strawberry flavor is so weak that I, it's just it was just really bland. Um, I, I originally I was um, thinking about maybe trying to mix them with banana cream frosted flakes, which I had mentioned last week, I believe. But honestly, I just don't think it's worth it because the flavor just isn't there, and they were they were really disappointing. They might maybe uh, maybe I'll give it a try and make like rice krispies treats with them and see if that's something that works out a little bit better but as a cereal it was it was pretty pretty disappointing what other podcast on the internet can you get reviews of fruity lucky charm cereal and the latest chinese big blockbuster on the same podcast only on slash film daily yes only slash film daily uh so that that is all that you have been eating this week brad uh yeah that's it that's it you ate nothing else. That was that was it. Well, I'm, was I supposed to eat something no, else? No, it just sounds like a very bad diet to just be eating <laughs> strawberry rice krispies and fruity Lucky Charms all week. I but, mean, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I ate other things like a normal person. <laughs> I wasn't just shoveling cereal into my mouth all week. <laughs> I don't know. That's why I pick. I like to picture that. Um, okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, uh, you've been playing some video games this week. Yeah, last week I mentioned dipping my toes back into XCOM 2, the uh, alien fighting uh, uh, PC, I have the PC version, strategy game where you control a rebel force battling alien occupiers of Earth. I mentioned it was my favorite game of all time. I figure I just, you know, play for a little bit, get my scratch itch and be done with it again. I've been playing it every night (laughs) since last week, and it... All the new stuff they've added since I last played is incredible. It's made a, a really great game even better. It's very challenging, very stressful, very fun. Lots of options. To put this in, let's put this, put this way. Last night, around 11 p.m., my wife and I went upstairs to go to bed. I said, I'm going to play an hour of XCOM. Then I'll be to bed at midnight, as I, which is usually what I do. And then my wife comes to the door and says, why aren't you in bed yet? Look at my watch. and It's 3.30. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not realize I'd been playing for four and a half hours. It just happened. And to put it in context, I'm up, at, I'm up for work at 8, 8 o'clock every morning. So I went right to bed. Oh, wow. But I was literally um, I, three, up to 3.30 last night. I was battling aliens unaware on a work night that I was up that late. The, the addiction is real, Peter. I do have to ask you, Jacob, have you named any of your squadron after any of us on the podcast? Have we died? 
Um, not in this playthrough, but on the first playthrough, I named all of my people after everybody in, in my life. Because the way, way it works is that when, you, when a soldier <laughs> dies in XCOM, they're, they're dead for good. So when, when I, my first playthrough, I named everybody after friends and family so that when they went in the battle, I took it very seriously. They weren't some disposable person. They were very clearly meant to be, oh, that's my sister, that's my, that's my friend, that's my <laughs> wife. That's, you were in there, Peter. Um, she was in there. Uh, yeah, Ben. This is, uh, last time, it was before Chris joined the crew, so Chris is not in there. Um, but I remember in my, in the last game, Peter died on his first mission. Um, <sighs> typical, uh, HT was a, was, was, was one of my reserve medics and yes. Ben, and Ben was a backup uh, grenadier who handled explosives. <laughs> None of you made it in my A team, but you were, but you were on my team. I don't remember where Brad was, but, um, not good enough to be in the game, apparently. <laughs> you were in there for you were in there for sure. I don't remember what your class was because there's <laughs> grenadiers, snipers, support, rangers, and something else. And I, but yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's very, very. I, I know where Brad was. He was eating fruity Lucky Charms at home. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very upsetting game when you when you the game it, it punishes you if you make a mistake. Like if you do anything lazy in that game, the aliens will take full advantage of it and just destroy your soldiers. And when like people you know, work with and love are being destroyed by aliens, that game, it, it's, it's kind of a game where I've rage quit it. Like just immediately hit escape my keyboard and exit the desktop. Then waited 30 seconds and booted it back up and kept playing it. It's, it's that kind of game. <laughs> well, very cool. Uh, that brings us to the end of another slash film daily. You can find this podcast on slash film.com. Uh, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at uh, peter at slash film.com. Uh, no, we don't need any more emails to get Chris to do an unboxing of VHS tapes. I think we're going to try to make that happen sometime in the future. And uh, please go to our iTunes page, give us a five-star review, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob. Uh, I have in front of me the gargantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian, and I've opened it up to the very first page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first page. Uh, maybe, actually... maybe this is why I died on the first mission. <laughs> <laughs> the first page is for the first section. It is called Big Heads. Um, are, are you guys ready? <laughs> sure. Yes. Absolutely, hey, hey, Chris. Your head is getting too big for your to- for your toupee. Oh no, <laughs> uh, Ben. Your egotism is a plain case of mistaken non-entity. All right, what? A little I, wordplay there. I feel like these are just Donald Trump jokes. Uh, Brad, Brad. Every time you open your mouth, you put your feet in, meaning F E A T S. Every time you open your mouth, you put your feet in. Oh boy! Wait, what kind of insult requires you to actually spell the word that you're insulting the person with? This one. <laughs> HT, she's a real big gun of small caliber and immense bore. <laughs> oh, here's here's a good one, Peter. Someone yeah. should push the down button on your elevator shoes. Uh... <laughs> What does it have to do with big head? I, was gonna say, I thought these are big head ones. I yeah. thought these big body parts. Not, not big shoes. I think it means like to bring you down to earth because your head's too big. I guess. they should. It should say head somewhere in the joke. That's all I'm going to say. By the way, I just realized that Louis A. Safian wrote Introduction to this book. I'm going to read from it briefly. 
Uh, how yeah. often have you felt the need at a given moment for a whimsical wisecrack or a waggish quip to put that, put a spark in your conversation? Well, why be caught with gags down? You can't win in a battle of wits unless you're properly armed with a repartee, a rapid-fire repartee, a capsule caricature, a salty sally, or a snappy comeback. <laughs> Jacob, you should interview... Louis Sapien or whatever his name is. Yeah, this book probably can't. <laughs> is he alive? Yeah, that would be great if he was. Yeah, we should find him and interview him. I want to hear what he thinks is the best insult in his book. The unabashed purpose of this compilation is to enable you, at the drop of a gag, to place your comic laconic stamps on the idiosyncrasies of diverse specimens of the human race. I have endeavored to include the wit of absurdity, analogy, burlesque, Cynicism, drollery, epigram, facetiousness, ridicule, <laughs> thought play, wordplay, and urbanity. It also says, I wrote this for the one person on earth who will ever read it. You, <laughs> Jacob Hall, reading this right now. <laughs> oh my God, don't say that. 